when I look back, I'm very thankful for that decision and to obey, even though I didn't know what was coming. Looking back, it's been 15 years. It's very, very difficult, but I think it's very rewarding internally. I felt that I have been stretched. I feel that my capacity has been enlarged. Capacity to deal with crisis, capacity to deal with the unknown, to handle mass complaints, you know, just dealing with the public. Yeah, I'm very thankful for the experience. I think for a 43-year-old person to be able to have more than a decade of experience in Malaysian politics, I feel it has really, really grown me as a person. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. YB, Hannah, you're welcome to the Explore This podcast. We know you have an extremely busy schedule and so we are extremely grateful for your time coming on the podcast with us today. And Hannah, I read your book, Becoming Hannah, during my college days and reread it again while preparing for this conversation and just wanted to kickstart this conversation telling you how much of a deep appreciation we have for you and your life journey. And especially so as a proud Subang Jaya homie, you have indeed made so many of us Malaysians proud. And we're so excited to be sharing this episode with our listeners in time for Madeka that's just around the corner. So let's dive into this conversation with this question that I'm sure many people are curious about. Hannah, tell us what has 2020 and 2021 been for you navigating the pandemic and what else have kept you busy during the past two years? Hi, Sarah. Hi, Denise. Thank you so much for having me. 2020 and 2021, they have been very difficult years simply because a Sheraton move happened in the year 2020. And so while I was still processing the shock and then grief when I realized what has happened, and then it was immediate lockdown on, I still remember, I think it was 18 March, if I'm not mistaken. And that was a very sudden in 2020. And also because COVID was so unknown to the world at that time, there was just a lot of fear because, you know, when you have young children and then prior to the arrival of vaccine, you know, you watch the news and people are in PPE suits and people are dying, being intubated. So many scary images. And then we had to deal with the lockdown, multiple lockdowns, and then, you know, all the mask requirement and also dealing with, you know, different businesses asking to be opened up. All those, I think now are things of the past. I'm just happy that we can go out and do life like normal again. And when I look back now, 2020, 2021, seemed like a long time. And it's also a bit like misty, you know, when you try to remember those moments. I just remember trying a lot of recipes. And it was also during the time that I explored Dapo Hena Yo. Just, you know, just some random cooking recipes on helping working mothers come up with very fast dishes. Yeah. Yeah, I remember your videos, Hannah. I was so, so impressed that you managed to take up a completely new hobby. And even, you know, in the midst of processing the grief and the shock and obviously the anguish that was the past two years. I think that hobby has died, Jenny. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> when the lockdown ended, it died. Okay, maybe you can think about reviving it again now. after GE lah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, our conversation today is actually really going to be centered around the trials and tribulations that have turned into testimonies. So let's re now rewind the clock to that time in your late 20s when you went into politics. In 2008, you actually graduated with a degree in law in Tasmania. And we know from your book, Becoming Hannah, that you actually left Australia rather reluctantly. 
and you worked in events for two years. And at the age of 29, you then made the decision to run for office, contesting for the Subang Jaya state seat during the 2008 general elections. Take us back to that day when you were first fielded to be a candidate for DAP Subang. What fueled your decision to actually confirm your candidacy, given that politics wasn't something that you actually had in mind? I think when I think back about that moment, everything happened very, very quickly. It was wedding in January, February, parliament dissolved and then nominated and then ran for election. So it happened so quickly, I think for a reason, simple reason for me, not being able to digest those things. And I think God had his his way of arranging the timing because if I had a long time to ponder and to think and to read, through and then to speak to every single person, whether or not it's a good idea, I think I would not have done it. Simply because even in that short period of time, some people were very encouraging, some people were not encouraging at all. And, you know, they say that, you know, you can go in clean as a Christian, but you will come out as corrupt as the rest of the politicians. So for me, I, I think when I look back, I'm very thankful for that decision and to obey, even though I didn't know what was coming. Looking back, it's been 15 years. It's very, very difficult, but I think it's very rewarding internally. I felt that I have been stretched. I feel that my capacity has been enlarged. Capacity to deal with crisis, capacity to deal with the unknown, to handle mass complaints, you know, just dealing with the public. Yeah, I'm very thankful for the experience. I think for a 43-year-old person to be able to have more than a decade of experience in Malaysian politics, I feel it has really, really grown me as a person. Well, Hannah will say that you do not look a day over 30 even. And it's just been so evident your work and the impact that you have been a part of in our entire Malaysian politics as well as history. And we remember so clearly, I remember reading your book where you describe one of your meltdown experience during your first Chirama at the Logo Beans Chirama and you actually broke down and now maybe it seems like an eternity ago, right? But back then, you know, in your book, you shared how you felt like you had nothing to tell the people. There was no campaign promise to make, no manifesto because you did not know enough about anything to make promises that you were not even sure that you could deliver. And to your point earlier about how things happen so quickly before you even had time to process it, it really was part of God's plan. But we want to hear from you. How did you overcome the thoughts of fears and doubts as well as mentally prepare yourself for all the subsequent charamas that you had to deliver? And charamas was just a fraction of this entire political career that that was beckoning you. You know, Jeramas, until today, I think it has remained a thorn in my flesh. Like, it is a constant reminder for me. Even, you know, after 15 years, for me, it's like every time I want to go up, I feel I'm not equipped. I feel I have no message. I have nothing to say to the people. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it, I'm constantly put on, you know, just reminder mode to constantly remind myself that really apart from him, I can do nothing. Yeah, if I have a charama on Sunday, on Monday, I will be all stressed out already. Like one week, I can't really function. Just thinking, stressing about content. Yeah, so to, today, I think I definitely have more confidence. But with knowing more, it also means that I'm more particular as to what I am sharing with the people. You know, when I go up there, it's not just about making them feel charged, but really 
what am I communicating? It must be out of facts. It must be out of hope. And it must be out of truth. That, that's the most important. Like, I really don't want to mislead people. So that's why I, when I deal with Chiramas, I'm very stressed out because I want to make sure that what I'm giving is something that is good to the people and not just you know something to fill up time, fill up my space on stage. I'm really curious to know because you know you, you describe your your first experience so colorfully and it felt like we were with you as you were going through the waves of meltdown. What are some practical tools or steps that you do today to just kind of keep calm and just make sure that you are able to be like steady and level-headed and remember the message that you want to deliver? I think the difference back then and now would be now if I'm stuck on stage, I have enough experience to to retell the stories or to retell something that I know. Compared to back then, I didn't know what to expect at all. That's why I think I cried. I, I don't think I've cried ever since then before going to Chirama, you know. That was probably the first and last time. But definitely, I think now if I'm ever on stage, there are moments, for example, like during election time when everybody's in the mood. That one is a bit hard to stop talking. But apart from that, I think, you know, Kopitiam, Chirama or, you know, normal day, those are non-election period, people are not as charged up. And when you go there, you really have to do a very difficult job of just really getting people into the mood. Yeah. It's quite daunting, you know. It's really, especially when you go to restaurants where people are busy with their food and they have no time to even look at you. That's really quite scary when you are when you are talking and not getting the response that you want. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Especially since, you know, we Malaysians love our food. It would take us quite a lot to pry our eyes away from Maokari Laksa. So I'm sure we would have trained very well for, for that right now. <laughs> you know, speaking about the trials and tribulations that you went through, there was one actually, one particular trial and tribulation turned into testimony that we would love to explore with you. And that is related to your marriage to Ram. So we've heard and, you know, heard you describe yourself as an accidental politician. But there's no doubt that your faith as a Christian definitely played a huge role in your life. And it is very personal and very evident from answering God's call in politics and also even into stepping into marriage with Ram, which is pretty divine to say the least when we were reading about it. Would you share with our audience who haven't really heard about the miracle behind the marriage. Yeah, I take you back to the year before 2008 general elections. It was 2007. I have just um, moved to the same church uh, of my husband. And also at that time, I joined the DAP. And it was also during that time that I, in January 2007, I received a prophecy from a pastor friend. He said that in June the same year, I would receive a proposal from a man that God has prepared for me. And up to May, one month before that, June, I had no relationship. I had no proposal, nothing. There was no interest coming from anybody. I was as single as you can be. And it was also during that time, I think I was asked to preach in my church. And as I was preaching, my husband was in the congregation. And of course, we were friends by then. When I was preaching, he was reminded of a vision he's been having every time at work or when he's driving. And that vision, you know, it fits me on stage and what he was seeing. And so he knew that God had prepared me to be his wife. And so he spoke to my mentor. He then asked me to pray about the next step. And I took about, you know, more than 10 days to, to pray. And then I received my confirmation. And then I cut the long story short. I said yes to him. And that was the first time we got engaged. Even 
before holding hands. And we knew by then in June that we had to be married by January 2008. We didn't know what was coming. So we just obeyed the prompting. We planned our wedding, a very simple one. And in January 2008, we got married, like I said, after honeymoon. The next month, parliament dissolved. And because I was a DAP member at that time, I was asked to stand for election for my hometown, Subang Jaya. So many people think that saying yes to politics is a big decision. But really, during that time, a bigger decision for me was saying yes to God for that marriage that he had arranged for us. And that was just one month before that election, right? So by the time I got married uh, in February, running for election sounds like a big deal. But really, in terms of saying yes to God and in obeying what he planned for me, really is not, it's not really a big deal in that sense. If you measure, you know, the scale of uh, the weight of saying yes to a marriage and also saying yes to politics about two, three to five years each term. That's the journey in that, in that 12 months. I have to say, Hannah, it, it's by like 150% divine intervention and God's hand upon all of it, every step of the way, just preparing Ram preparing you and just laying the foundation for everything that lies ahead of you. And it is truly a miracle to say the least. But, you know, looking back, it's always hindsight is twenty twenty, and everything just happened for a reason, as cliche as that is, right? And in your journey over the past decade and even more than that, you have certainly pioneered and broken so many glass ceilings as a politician in Malaysia. And like you said, at the age of 43, having more than a decade of experience and was the youngest as well as the first female speaker of the house of any legislative body in Malaysia. So what did that mean for you and what was its significance to you? I remember all these moments at the milestones very well because this, all this joy or uh, personal achievement happened at a time when it was very difficult for me. So 2013, after winning election, by then I was actually in my third month of maternity leave. So I have given birth to my second child in February. In again, March, parliament dissolved. April was campaign time and then May was election. And then I was elected as speaker in June that year, 34 years old, youngest and first woman. And so when I took on that role, it was very challenging because I was still exclusively breastfeeding my baby. And then when I am on the speaker's chair, the only replacement would be my deputy speaker. So when I'm engorged, I had to run out and uh, pump, pump milk. And also at the same time, I had to memorize the names of all the assemblymen, which kawasan they belong to, because I had to call them according to their constituency. And because I was the first woman, for me at the time, I felt like that all eyes would be on me and I cannot make any mistake. Like I cannot afford to scream. I cannot afford to get upset, provoke and chase people out. So I cannot afford to lose my temper. I must be, you know, like best behavior. And I must do it well. I must be competent. I must be able to execute the duty well because, you know, it's the first. If I do a bad job, then people say, oh, you know, women, they are not suitable for this role. Or young people, they are not suitable for this role. So that that time was also very challenging because I was just not, mani not just managing a newborn. I was also managing a toddler. Yeah, on top of being speaker and also a state assemblyman for Subhanjaya. So, like I say, 
the entire experience has really stretched me. So like now I know what's my capacity. How far can I stretch myself to grow? So that's how I think it's really, really impacted me. Personally, it's very rewarding because you know your capacity, you know your weaknesses and you know your strength. You need crisis and you need hard times to draw things out on you. Because if every time you're just going through very, very easy, cozy life, you would not know what you have inside also. Yes, absolutely, Hannah. And I mean, I I think this brings to mind, I would say 2018, which was a very momentous occasion for many Malaysians, definitely, when PH won the GE and you were elected as the Deputy Minister of Women, Family and Community between 2018 and 2022 under the PH administration. So I would have imagined, you know, besides the immense honour and privilege, that also would have been another season of stretch for you. But we'd love to hear from you. What were the feelings and emotions that you that went through your mind at that point of time? At the time, I remember my party leader told me, you know, they have nominated me for this position, which is to assist Dr. Wan Aziza. And Dr. Wan Aziza was good, uh, the deputy prime minister at the time. And so I was asked if I would like to take up that role as deputy minister. And after I said yes, they then said that, you know, Tun Dr. Mahade would be calling me. And I did get a call from Tun Dr. Mahade and he asked if I was willing. And so after I said yes, then when, when I was interviewed on that, and I realized that many years ago, when I was asked if there was one portfolio I could hold, what would it be? And for me, it was always Ministry of Children, just really working to serve children in Malaysia. And I'm, I'm glad that the desires of my heart were given to me. And because it was the desire of my heart, it was my passion. Going to work every day was very challenging, very difficult. You know, some days I had like about six to seven events. But for me, it's fulfilling because I had the opportunity to look at the policy, to look at the weakness of the system and how can I use my passion and a brand new government and what can I do to change things? And so I remember my conversation with my team because every deputy minister, they are, we are given three staff to manage the portfolio, only three. Yeah? And I remember having a conversation with my team. I say, guys, but I don't know how long we'll be in Putrajaya. But let's make every day count because this could be our last time in Putrajaya. And so we must not waste time. And so we went in with that kind of mindset. So yes, even though Sheraton happened, but with my conscience uh, and, uh, and my team, I think everybody can vouch for the fact that we did not waste a single day in Putrajaya. Like my team, we really gave our 110% uh, to really make use of that time to serve you know, our stakeholders which are children in Malaysia. I really admire, Hannah, your clarity and your purpose, not just yourself, but your team as well, during that very short but sweet time while serving as that role because you made it very clear from the outset that you wanted to be very purposeful and that you had a goal in mind and that made the role and that time that you were there even sweeter. And so, you know, share with us as well. We want to know what, would you describe as your biggest or proudest satisfactory moment during your short tenure there? Oh, there were a few things. I, I remember the first day and the first week we were at work, we were greeted with the news of toddler who died in the hands of his nanny. And then they found his body in the, the fridge at home in the nanny's house. And I remember when I was informed, I had to go to the mortuary in the hospital Kuala Lumpur. And I, when I went there, then I discovered, oh, this boy, his mom is a nurse from our own government hospital. 
And so I started finding out, you know, what's the reason how this boy landed in the hands of this nanny. And then I realized that actually there's no childcare for our frontliners. Our doctors and nurses in our government hospital do not have access to childcare and they work shift hours. So most childcare outside will finish at 5 p.m., 6 p.m. And if you have to work midnight shift, where do these nurses and doctors send their kids to? And so I was asked if I would like to see the boy in the mortuary. And I say, yes, of course. I went in. When I look at him, I told myself, you know, I must not let this boy die vain. There must be something good that will, must come out of this sacrifice of this young boy's life. And so when I went back to Putrajaya, I immediately asked our KSU and the staff. And I said, I want you to take out every circular, government circular. Tell me what are the requirements? How come our government hospitals and frontliners do not have access to childcare? And then I found out that, you know, back in 1980s, there were already circulars in place that every government agency must do their best to have childcare. And we immediately sent out an audit and then came back more than 500 government agencies across Malaysia have no childcare. We spoke to finance ministry. Finance ministry then made a first pledge of 10 million ringgit in 2019 for us to start up childcare. And from that 10 million, we were able to establish more than 60 childcare centers in government agencies. So I wanted to knock out every year from the 500 government agencies, I wanted to knock out more and more and more. So by the time 2020 came, we were given 30 million three times and then charity move happened. So out of that 10 million, we were able to go into government hospitals, places, agencies where there's a lot of shift work like police station, Jabatan Penjara, prison ministry. These are places where our enforcement officers don't have access to childcare. And so we plan out and we roll this out. So now we're just tracking and making sure that we fiercely follow up on this new government, making sure that they follow through this requirement. I felt that, you know, if the government themselves could not do childcare for their own staff, you know, we lose the authority to tell private sector who have to deal with profit every month and lack of space. We have no authority to tell private sector, hey, you've got to get this thing done, sorted out for your employees. So many people will have to quit their job just to look after their kids at home. And on top of that, children are not found in a safe place. So I think there were a lot of conversation about childcare. And because of that today, a lot of government hospital and frontliners have access to childcare. So if you ask me, these are some of the simple satisfaction, simple joy that came out of the very short 22 months in Putrajaya. Yeah, I mean, a simple joy, but definitely a massive impact indeed, you know, especially for those to whom this policy benefited. So I think that's truly incredible. And I think there were a lot of other initiatives that during your time as Deputy Minister, we were all very excited to see what were some of the new policies that you would be able to roll out, what you were all working towards. You know, granted, you've talked about how rewarding it was that time when you were the Deputy Minister, but what were some of these challenges and roadblocks that you also experienced as a policymaker, especially in, in the department and the mandate that you were given? During that time, the, the tagline for civil service was Saya Yang Menurut Perintah. That means, you know, I just follow instruction. And so Tun Dr. Mahade, when he became Prime Minister again, he changed that and he said, you know, I, I don't want them to just say Saya Menurut Perintah. You know, they got to be able to exercise their discretion and their wisdom and, and, and use the good things that they know to apply to the job. 
And so when we came in then, we were constantly asking the civil service, challenging them also in, in how they approach. Because we realized then up to that, by that time, they have only served one government, which is the, you know, which was the Barisan Bar- Bar- National Government. And so when you have a new government, you have to prove to them that, you know, when I tell you to do this, even though it sounds impossible, but you're going to at least give it a try and the outcome can be amazing. And so the, the difficult thing for me was to kind of push them to think out of the box, challenge the status quo. I give you one example. When we wanted to roll out sex offenders registry for children, I realized that we had only one system according to Akta Kanakana, and you have the names of children who have violated and those who committed a crime against these children. We have their names, but the public have no access to these names and no childcare operators or people who work with children, they are not able to access this database. And so we say we must provide a check mechanism for people who work with children. When you want to employ a new teacher, when you want to employ a bus driver who pick up kids, you want to employ a tennis coach who will have access to your children. You want to check if this person has committed any crime against children before. And so we turned to the police and I remember the police telling us, oh, you know, we cannot share this data with women ministry. This must be kept by the police force alone. And so we then had no access to the police force database. So what we did, we went to see the Chief Justice, Sun Richard Malanjo, and we say, can you help us? Every time you convict somebody, you sentence somebody under sexual, under sexual offenses against children act, can you give us the names every month? And so Chief Justice say, yes, we would like to be part of this. And Chief Justice then make sure the courts update us, send us to us every month. And with that simple out of the box thinking, we were able to have some kind of registry, even though it's only based in 2017, based on Sexual Offences Against Children Act. But at least that's a good starting point. At least we have something developed in-house. We don't have to spend millions on an app that nobody uses. And, and so that was a starting point. And even in that short experience, I have to constantly think about, you know, if this door is shut for me, which door can I knock on? And, and how can I not give up when people say, no, it cannot be done? You know, how can I think out of the box and how can I make use of other resources that are available to help us safeguard and protect children? It definitely makes you extra creative, Hannah, and it forces you to actually really think on your feet as well. And it's a perfect segue as we also start thinking about the upcoming general elections. And Hannah, I think it's not a surprise or not a secret, in fact, that the state of political uncertainty has been a consistent theme in Malaysia throughout the past years. And so having experienced the frustrations and yourself sharing the different roadblocks that you've encountered during your time, as well as disappointments that come hand in hand with this career in politics, what are the driving forces that still fuels you to keep going amidst all these challenges that you face that are thrown at you? You know... Halfway through my journey in politics, I have come to accept the fact that there are many things that are beyond my control, but I have a role to play and my role is to just constantly go at it and not give up. The outcome is not my problem. The outcome is God's problem. So my job is just to continue to play my part. And so for as long as he tells me that, you know, time is not up, you can need to continue to serve your people, serve your nation, that I will just keep going at it. Doesn't matter if for the rest of my life I remain as opposition. That's not my problem. Whether to win power or not, you know, 
to go into battle, that's my duty. But the outcome of the battle, that's not my problem. So that, I think, takes a lot of the stress away from me. And I only need to be a worker. I just work and serve every day. And in that sense, I think it is not difficult. But at the same time, how do you then constantly remain hopeful and continuously provide hope for people? Even though your eyes cannot see that hope, you know, and circumstances don't change, they remain the same or sometimes they become even worse. So that's when I think it requires a lot of walking by faith in not allowing sight to determine your response and your outcome. It's not easy, but I think doing it with other team members really helped. And in fact, if I look back now, 2008 to now, big, big difference in the strength of opposition. Today, the opposition is almost as strong as the government and if not stronger, you know, our idealism, the reason why we do what we do, not fueled by money, not fueled by, you know, greed, but really out of, you know, this is what we feel, this is the right thing to do. And so when our volunteers are not paid and inspired by money, you know, it's not so difficult actually when you do it as a team. Because when you are down, you encourage each other, you know, hey, you know, don't, don't worry, just keep on going, keep on going and our time will come. So far, it's been really good to have team members and you know, others to run the race with you. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we can only go so far alone, right? But when we go together, we can definitely run further. And I think what you said earlier, I think it's really encouraging and it brings to mind the saying that, you know, we can do our best and we just leave the rest to God. And that's the best that we can do, right? So I really love that encouragement and that reminder to all of us. And I think one other topic that we wanted to touch upon and discuss with you is actually on the topic of mental health. I think, to be honest, that's not really a topic that's discussed a lot, especially among, you know, politicians and female politicians here in Malaysia. We've spoken about this earlier in a podcast and it really has been a very challenging few years for many Malaysians and even people globally as well. Yeah, I think mental health is not talked about enough in Malaysia. We know the problem. We know, you know, about 30% of Malaysians struggle with that. But not many people have access to help, especially in the rural areas also. And because it's such a stigma, there's, there's a stigma associated with mental health. We grew up listening to, you know, the way people make fun of it. You know, people will say things like, even, even in parliament, oh, you have not taken your medicine, is it? When people say something ridiculous, then we make fun of the fact that, oh, you, are, you need medication. And so that stigma of needing medication, needing help, deter people from actually getting help or getting themselves diagnosed. And so I feel that what we need to get rid of is to normalize seeking help, seeking counseling, and also to make professional help more affordable and more accessible. I think one of the areas I would like to see change in Malaysia would be, I want to see more focus on rehabilitation. We don't have enough rehab homes. A lot of these are all managed by NGOs struggling to do fundraising in a pandemic time and the numbers are climbing. And at the same time also, I think there's not enough support group for caregivers. Mental health is not something that you can snap out of. Of course, miracle can happen. But it's not something that we can tell people, step out of it. I want you to just feel better, feel better. It doesn't work like that. For some people, it's a journey that they have to process and they need others to come alongside them. And you really need supportive family members to help you journey in this. But what about the family members who don't know where to turn to? You know, caregivers can be very, it's a very tiring job for caregivers because you love the person. You want to see the person feel better. But at the same time, they have their own struggles as well. So I definitely want to see more rehabilitation centers open up, affordable. I want to see more help 
provided for caregivers so that caregivers don't feel alone. Caregivers don't feel like nobody else will understand. Caregivers will not feel ashamed to talk about it. That's what I want to see change in terms of mental health support in Malaysia. One thing I was working with Ministry of Health before Sheraton moved was to look at Ministry of Health. They have centers where they, you know, run help for mental health patients, survivors. But I wanted to normalize this help. And that's why I talked to MOH and I said, I would like to see you bring these centers out into shopping malls because Malaysians love shopping malls and Malaysians look forward to shopping malls every weekend. That's the gathering place for communities. And if we can put these centers in shopping malls, just like how you walk in to pay a DJ bill or walk into a Maxis shop in shopping mall, you know, to make inquiries, how wonderful would it be if the support center for mental health are in shopping malls where people can just walk in, get an embassy down and get help. You know, then, you know, when you are getting treatment, when you're getting support, you can just say, I'm going to Sunmi Pyramid. I'm going to Mid Valley Mega Mall. And nobody would make fun of you. As opposed to now, I have to go to a hospital. I have to go and sit there and get a number. And then, you know, I'm treated like a patient. I want to see this normalized, you know, so that when you are getting help, you want to go and get counseling. It's not like a punishment room back in school days. You go to counseling room means you have a problem. Yeah, I, I, I want to get that negativity out. Yeah, Couldn't agree more. And I think a lot of it starts with even conversations that we hear even at home as well, right? The language that parents use with children, the language that is used in schools as well, it really starts from there in, in home and in school. So really love that. And I am with you. I'm hoping to see that come into fruition and to see that actually happen in Malaysia in the near future, hopefully, because it is something that is so important and so fundamental. All right. So Hannah, with this little time that we have left with you, we would like to go for a quick rapid fire round of questions. So fill in the blanks for us. And we're starting off with what's your favorite Subang Jaya Kopitiam? Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Bet you didn't see this coming. Oh no, somewhere in Taipan, maybe Sikko Planking. <laughs> <laughs> we know those ones. We know those ones. All right. Next question. What is something that people often get wrong about you? Every time when people meet me, right, they say, oh, I thought you're taller. Maybe I look tall in photograph because sometimes when you choose what photos to post, you always want to choose those that you look slimmerish and, and <laughs> taller, right? So when they see me, they're a bit short. Oh, you're so short. Yeah. And the fact that people tell you, I'm so amused by yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the other one, they always ask me, are you pregnant? <laughs> I'm not pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe people people might think that, but the fact that they actually ask you that it, yeah, it people will like, Yeah. All right. And what's one thing you're super excited about right now? General elections. I just can't wait because there's been so much talk about it, right? You just want to get it over and done with. I can imagine the anticipation building. I mean, for us, you know, the regular folks as uh, Rakyat Malaysia, but what more for you that is like in the center of all of it? Yeah. And all right, what's one thing that you would like to tell 29-year-old Hannah who was just about to enter politics? Don't stress. It's not that difficult. <laughs> now I look on hindsight, yeah, yeah, I can say that. Yeah, but it was during that time, it was just so scary. Well, the best was yet to come your way, Hannah. And we'd like to also wrap up the interview with a final question that we ask all our guests. And that question for you is, What's the one thing that you recently explored that surprised you? Gardening. I have learned to do gardening, indoor plants. Sounds so easy, but really it's not easy. 
you know, underwatering your plants or overwatering your plants can actually give you the same outcome. And that's why it's so, so confusing when you look at dry leaves and you, when you Google, you know, then you realize that, oh, you know, either you have given too much water or you have not given enough water. And sometimes you wish the plants can tell you, but the plants cannot. And that's why, you know, it's really a guessing game and, and learning and reading up and also talking to senior citizens because we have a lot of kebun communities around and they are so experienced. Sometimes I just take a photo and I show them and straight away they can diagnose it. Yeah, so <laughs> it's really quite interesting. Yeah, there are a lot of Malaysians who are very knowledgeable when it comes to gardening. They are like the plant doctors that we all never knew we needed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And Hannah, where can our listeners find you as well? I'm mostly on Facebook, Yo, also on Instagram. I've recently explored Twitter, also, you know, Hannah Yo MP, user ID and Twitter. These are the common social media accounts that we, we handle on our own here. So definitely, yeah, find us on Facebook if you are above 30 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet on TikTok, Hannah? I am on TikTok already. You are? Oh, yeah. you need to shout out your TikTok handle here. Hannah Yo MP. <laughs> all so right. Our listeners out there, give Hannah a follow on all her social media accounts as well. Thank you. Hannah, thank you so much for sharing the incredible trials and tribulation stories that have really manifested into great testimonies. And I think it's going to be really inspiring for all of our audience, especially with Merdeka just around the corner. We are so glad we get a chance to share your inspiring story and your journey with our audience because we do truly believe that it would serve as a reminder on how we can turn the trials and tribulations in our lives into testimonies, navigate all these ambiguities that we face in life, failures, and as well as to learn more about how you're striving and thriving even in the midst of challenges. So we're so grateful for your time, Hannah. But before we let you go, we would like to ask you, what is your one final message that you would like to share with all the Malaysians during this Merdeka season. For all Malaysians listening to this, never give up on Malaysia. I think we have a very beautiful nation and the people are even more beautiful. When good people give up, you know, then nothing will ever change. So evil triumphs, I'm sure everybody knows this, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. And so the future generation of Malaysians are dependent on us, this generation, to make a difference, to try to change things. So never give up trying. Yeah. Thank you so much, Hannah. We're so grateful to you and for your time on the podcast with us. And we can't wait for this episode to be shared with all our audience as well. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks, Hannah. And happy Merdeka. Happy, happy Merdeka. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then! Thank you.